Welcome to the Fit for Golf podcast. The goal of this podcast is to provide insightful and entertaining conversations based around golf, fitness, and health. In this episode, I am joined by Ted Scott. Ted has been Bubba Watson's caddy for seven years and also worked with Paul Azinger. Ted is a real student of the game, a plus handicap player, tour caddy, and golf instructor on weeks he is not traveling on the PGA Tour, it is safe to say he is someone we can really learn from. As I've gotten to know Ted, his passion for helping others has been clear to see, and it really shines through in this episode. Did you know there is a Fit for Golf app loaded with training material suitable for all levels of golfer? It is the only golf fitness resource you will ever need and is currently being used by six PGA Tour players, two European Tour players, and thousands of amateurs all over the world. Check it out on www.fitforgolf.blog and use the code FFGTRIAL to get a one-month trial for just $6. You will not find it in the App Store. You must go to my website. Now, to Ted Scott. Welcome to the Fit for Golf podcast, Mr. Ted Scott. Thanks, Mike. Always a pleasure to hang with you, buddy. You know that. Thank you very much for giving up your time, Ted. I know you have a very important job coming up as soon as we finish. You must help your wife get ready for the uh, Christmas tennis party. So um, I'll try not to keep you too long and we'll get right into the questions. Ted, you have been a caddy on the PGA Tour for 16 years, I believe starting in 2003 or 2004. How did that come about? Well, first of all, I started in 2000. So, you know, let's, let's give me full credit. <laughs> I was, my, my, my research was incorrect. I must have found it all day. <laughs> no, um, actually, I, I turned pro in 99 to teach golf. A lot of my friends were asking me to help them. And then uh, a guy, you know, that I played around the golf was like, man, you're really playing well. You know, I'd love to see you try the mini tours. And I hadn't really considered it. Uh, he had money and I had time. So he invited me to uh, partner with him. And so in March of 2000, uh, I was waiting tables at night, practicing, getting ready for the 2000 season on the mini tours. And the web.com comes through my hometown every year. And so um, I, I just basically uh, called out there and, and said, hey, is there any way that I can, you know, caddy this week? You know, I've always had a philosophy, probably since I was 18 years old, someone taught me that if you want to get better at something, you find people who are better than you. And uh, that's how I found you, you know, I was like, hey, this guy knows what he's talking about. So um, I don't know if I sought you out, but I was definitely spying on you on Twitter and social media. I was like, I like what this guy's saying, man. He's got some cool stuff. So, you know, if you want to find an expert and be good at anything, you you got to hang out with them, spend time with them, you know, do what they do. So. I just went to caddy for the week and uh, the guy's name that picked me up was Grant Waite. And he asked me to do it again and again. And, you know, three months later, Tiger Woods is hitting a six iron out the bunker over water to beat us by one. And the week before we finished second. So two weeks of second back to back. And I was like, you know, this isn't too bad of a business to be in. So uh, that's kind of how it all got started. So just trying to get my timelines right here. Does that mean that your kind of playing ambitions were were scrapped pretty early on then and you you went kind of straight into caddying? Yeah, so basically, you know, I, my goal was to, instead of having someone else sponsor me, maybe I could make some money and still learn from the best players in the world, you know, so that was kind of the plan. And then, uh, you know, once I started caddying and, and I was trying to pick up a bunch of knowledge and my plan was to caddy for a year or two and then go back to playing, but then I got engaged and started having kids. And, you know, I thought, yeah, I'll just stick to this because these guys are way better than me. <laughs> so I'm farther, you know, you shoot 65 at your home course and people think you're good. Those guys are just amazing. You know, it's, it's a whole different level of good. So it really kind of opened my eyes to how far away I was. But it also helped me to learn a lot, too. So it was kind of a win-win. This is a question I didn't have planned, but I'll touch on it seeing as you brought it up because it's something that I think people are always interested in and that unless you see – PGA Tour golf up close, it can be really hard to appreciate exactly how good the players are. So you said you had the capability of shooting, say, five, six, seven under at your home course at what, maybe like 19, 20 years of age? Yeah, I was 26 or 27. I was a late bloomer. <laughs> okay, so, so 26 or 27, probably a plus three, four, five handicap. 
Yeah, probably, I'd say plus two maybe back then would have been the best I was. Okay, but immediately you could see the gulf between the le- the playing level you were at and where these guys you started caddying for were at. Yeah, you know, we I think too often people look at a number, Mike, and they think, oh, 68? I shot 68, you know? Yeah. Uh, hey, I scored 30 points in my basketball game, you know? Yeah, but who's the, who's the defender? You know, oh, I hit an ace against, you know, I hit three aces. I could probably play with Federer. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> too sure about that, you know. So I think until you actually get side by side with them and see how difficult the courses are and also to do it under pressure. You know, it's one thing to go play your home course that you know and you know every read, you know every putt. There's nobody watching. You're, you're playing against the same people versus playing in front of millions of people, you know, on TV. Of course, you don't know. You know, it's it's a the situation changes a lot, too. So there's just a lot of factors that you really can't I would say you really can't measure too well, you know, but you can clearly see it once you're once you're in it. You go, wow, this is different. I don't know what's different, but it's a lot different. This is a much better product than what I got. Okay, yeah, I know. That's great. There's a couple of uh, things you touched on there that I have questions planned for later and we'll get back into some of that. So Grant Waite, Paul Azinger, Olin Brown and Bubba Watson are the players you've caddied for. Azinger and Bubba don't need any intro. Some people may not be as familiar with Grant Waite, who's actually a really interesting guy when you kind of get to know what he's done after golf, and also Olin Brown. Can you tell us a little bit about those two guys and um, maybe delve into the different approaches each of those players had to the game, kind of what you learned from their, their different styles, even not so much swing or technique-wise, but just kind of how they approached getting better and kind of what their philosophy on the game was. Yeah, I think, first of all, um, every person that I've caddied for is really a product of their environment and their upbringing. So a lot of the thought process comes from, you know, deep-rooted childhood and uh, and sort of what your parents put importance on, you know, and how, what kind of encouragement did they get you, give you or how did they push you? Uh, so Grant was a very, uh, hard worker, probably the hardest worker I ever worked for. I mean, the guy was relentless, you know, uh, you would love him, you know, super fit, love to exercise, love to try to chase strength, mobility, all that stuff, stability, um, you know, fanatic for the golf swing, probably knew the golf swing better than most tour pros could teach it. Um, and that was probably his downfall was, I think he was a little bit too much into the technical aspect of it, you know, and sometimes forgetting that you're going to hit a bad shot and that's okay. You know, you just have to go scramble and get it up and down. Um, Olin Brown, a great ball striker, actually had a really good technical swing. Um, just a great dude. Maybe not quite as talented as, as Grant, you know, um, as far as, you know, strength and, and distance, but, uh, but a bulldog, you know, not afraid to play well, um, you know, love the situation. And then uh, when I worked for Azinger, you know, he never, he never broke 80 once until he got into college. So, um, so that was interesting. He, you know, his, his thing was, he would tell me that everything he knows in golf, someone taught him. He said, I didn't learn anything on my own. I wasn't that good. So he got around the right people that directed him. He worked hard at it. But, uh, but one thing about Paul is he's, he's always had a huge belief system. You know, um, one of the fun things he would do when we would play uh, practice rounds would, he would just call people out in the crowd. Hey, you in the blue shirt, watch this, you know, don't blink. I don't want you to miss this shot. You know, and I'm thinking, well, why is he saying this? You're playing terrible right now. But he just seemed to always be trying to put pressure on himself. And I think that was smart because whenever he got in the competition, it was some somewhat normal versus if you're a person that tries to avoid pressure, 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 and then you're trying to do something that's going to eventually have pressure involved. It's kind of scary when it comes down the pipe. Right. So he was really good at doing that. Um, and he had world class short game you know, probably the biggest belief of all the guys I worked for him. He thought he was the best, you know, just huge belief, but probably in his own words, the least talented, you know, natural talent. And then you have Bubba, who's just, you know, freak talent. I mean, the, the game, <clears throat> excuse me, seems very easy for him physically. There's not, no no aspect of the game as far as physical skill that, that seems difficult for 15 years now. He just, he wakes up and golf's not that hard, but the mental aspect of it is very challenging you know, dealing with a lot of the distractions, um, not, you know, if he was playing the mini tours, I think his worst finish ever was third, but, you know, playing in front of people and having media and questions and things like that, that, that definitely is his battle. 
Um, in regards Azinger not breaking 80 until he went to college, did he start playing the game very late? Was he was he late to golf or late to taking golf seriously? I, I would think he was late to taking golf seriously. You know, he loves fishing and his dad, they had a, uh, a marina. And so he would work at the marina. And, you know, I think he just loved the water, being on the water, did a lot of fishing. And I think he played golf, but didn't take it too seriously. Um, you know, maybe he did, but I, that's my, you know, recollection. And then uh, Dr. Suddy, who was like the 2000 PGA teacher of the year, was his college coach. So he had, you know, a guy that really knew golf and uh, and just started helping him out. And before you know it, man, the guy, you know, I think when you have somebody that's extremely confident, it'd be kind of like taking maybe Tom Brady under your tutelage, you know, hook him up with somebody that's a great coach. And the guy just, he's a gamer, right? It doesn't matter what sport you put someone like that in. The mental aspect aspect of it, they're very good at. So that's where he was. He just, he could adapt very quickly to the skills you give him, you know. I actually taught him how to play foosball. And that's how we got together. Ironically, uh, you know, he wanted to learn how to play foosball. And that's how I started catting for him. And it was amazing to me how fast he started competing well with the very little skills he had because he just has that natural belief system that he's way better than he is, you know? Yeah. And sometimes when you believe it, so does your opponent, you know, whether it's true or not. So it's pretty cool. Um, You touched on Grant Waite being very analytical, kind of obsessed with the mechanics of the swing and almost striving for, for technical perfection. We see that to a to a lesser extent, I think, through all elements of the game. You know, whether it's a, a good amateur, a, a regular club player, kind of someone just starting out. And you said um, you think it may have affected him a little bit in that he, he could have been better if he'd, you know, been able to sort of leave that aside a little bit and focus on, on playing and scoring and accepting mistakes. I think I fall into that category a little bit too, just in terms of just in terms of personality, you know, whether it's it's stuff in the gym or or written training programs and and definitely see it just with my approach to golf too. But my kind of question is um do you think somebody like Grant Wade could change? Or is that just something that's in his DNA and he'd almost feel, say, a void or he might get worse if he was moving away from everything that he'd done to bring him to the level he'd gotten to. Like, do you think there's a risk there that, that maybe that kind of strive for say technical perfection is what gave him the motivation to put in all the practice time he needed. And you, if you just said, look, we're not, we're not getting a video out. We're not getting, you know, any technology out for the next year. We're just going playing golf. We're just going focusing on scoring. Do you think there's a chance that that would be like, I don't, I don't like this, you know, or, or what are your thoughts there? I love this question, you know, because I think it goes both directions. Um, and what I mean by that is you have people who who are maybe afraid to change so they don't and they don't grow. And then you have people that, that aren't afraid to change and they get so far away from what they know that they, they're no longer good. And we've seen that we've seen that on the tour, I think, in both areas. You know, uh, Craig Perks, when he won the Players' Championship, went to a teacher and the guy totally changed his swing and he only made two cuts in the next five years for his exemption, you know, and he looking back, wish he wouldn't would not have gotten technical and tried to improve so much. Um, so I think, you know, number one, when you're making changes and you're elite already, you have to be very careful not to get too far from who you are as a person. So it might not be uh, that we don't want to take the salt and pepper out of the meal for grant. We just don't want to put so much salt and pepper in there. You know, that was more the way I look at it. It was, uh, I think Grant would have been better if he could have just backed off a little bit of the mechanics. You know, and today, probably with today's shot link data and things like that, I believe his perception could have changed because he's a very smart man, super smart. I mean, really bright mind. I think his perception could have changed of what good ball striking was. And maybe that could have helped him to pursue some other things that would have made him, you know, play what play better because he had, you know, we went to see several of the top teachers and they all said he had the best swing they'd ever seen. You know, I mean, matter of fact, they were using him as a model. Thanks for coming. Now I can use your swing to teach everybody. Yeah, yeah. But um, but the interesting thing was, I think whenever you're working on, you know, your takeaway and then somebody else says, oh, your left toe needs to be and you're working on that. And somebody else says, you should strengthen your grip. And somebody else says, get your elbow here. And you get out there, you know, you've worked on these four things. You don't know which one to do. You don't really believe in it. 
and you're not always connected to the target. Maybe you're too connected to yourself, right? So there's there's that aspect of it that I think it's a it's a false perception of what good golf is, and it's a pursuit of something that really doesn't exist, which is hitting a golf ball perfectly straight. You know, I, I like uh, Scott Fawcett tells the story of they had this cannon that they built uh, to, to try to make a hole in one in Phoenix on 16. I don't know if you know that story, but this cannon would shoot indoors. It could shoot a golf ball within two yards, 150 yards. I'm sorry, 150 yards with no, you know, wind or anything. And it could land within two yards every time, you know, six feet. That's pretty amazing, right? So the launch angle, spin rate, and ball speed was the same coming out of this cannon every time. And they took it to 16th hole at Phoenix to try to make a hole in one. And there was a five mile an hour wind that day. And the difference in yardage was 12 yards. And that's coming out of a cannon with the same ball speed, the same launch angle and the same spin rate every time. And they had a 12 yard difference depending on the wind. And we're human beings. We can't repeat that same, you know, incredible ball speed, launch angle, spin rate every time. We can't replicate something that machine can do. And yet the machine had a 12 yard variance. So how much greater are we going to have? So I think the first thing, when you have a player like that is to just say, Hey, look, you know, cause honestly, Grant was incredible at every aspect of the game. I mean, he was amazing, you know, but I think he just, he thought he was broken sometimes when he really wasn't, but that's just because, you know, the perception is you can hit perfect shots and you really can't, you know, you yeah. have to accept. Or, or not for, yeah. Not for very long. Anyway, you might get, you might get a six hole stretch or a round, but it's it's right. not happening. Absolutely. Tournament. No, that's really interesting. I think, um, it's it's a a kind of battle to balance for I think any golfer who's interested in improvement is depending on the level you're at there's there's no way you can say completely close the door on on mechanics or technique it is really important absolutely there's all, but there's there's also when you're on a golf course you know hitting a challenging shot it's going to be very hard I think to play your best golf if you're still tied up with mechanics and there needs to be that balance of, I suppose, development of skills and technique versus trying to play golf as well as you can on that day. And it's something that you kind of touched on there at a, at the elite level, but something that I think club golfers could probably learn from too. Yeah. You know, I, I, when I coach people, my mom used to make us every Thanksgiving, we'd have to watch dancing with the stars with her. And it would, it would amaze me because you have these world-class athletes, you know, from other sports that are terrible at dancing. You know what I'm thinking? How can so, such elite movers be so bad at moving? Because they're doing something they don't know. And in the beginning, they're very awkward. The beginning of the show, they're, you know, their first weekend, they're counting steps. There's no music. It's very robotic. And that's really the side of the brain that, that we have to be in to gain a skill. And then by the end of the show, those that last actually have a little bit of rhythm and they're kind of moving a little better because they start to own that skill. So the problem with changing your swing is you get so into, you know, focusing on the mechanics and we're talking about doing an endeavor that takes one second, basically to swing, you know, from start back to impact, you're trying to do something in that one second. And if you haven't done it enough times, and you're also trying to connect it to what's the wind doing, where's my target, how's this going to affect it? Oh, am I nervous? That's a lot of stuff happening in one second. So uh, changing your swing is difficult. And when you're really, really good, it's probably the place you should be very careful to, you know, be the most careful when you're, a, when you're an elite player, when you're a beginner and you stink, man, you might as well start building something now. Yeah. You know, that's why I tell my friends that come in that are shooting in the nineties and say, look, you, you come in here at once a year and you're still shooting 90. When are you going to do something different? I know it's uncomfortable, but you you're limited with your physical swing. You have to gain a better physical swing in order to produce a better result but yeah you have a great mind but if you put me on a bicycle i could be the greatest race car driver ever i'm not going to beat mike in a truck you know it just be, doesn't matter how good i can drive the car uh, if i'm on a bicycle i'm just in an inferior vehicle so i think there's a blend of both and usually the better the player the less you want to change their technique and the worse the player i think the more you just say hey look let's just dive into this for a year and you, you're not you're not going to shoot good scores anyway so Let's yeah. see what we can do. You know, that's yeah. how I like to approach it. Yeah, no, that's great. the The return for the for the beginner player or the poorer player is pretty much guaranteed to lead to better results if they put in the work. But that is yeah. not the case for an elite player who's already been doing that for fifteen or twenty five years. Right, very scary for them. Honestly, I mean, you could go away like that. We've seen it, you know, several times with several elite players. 
So it's fascinating. It's a fascinating study. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. And no, you're a great guy to ask when you've you've been around it for so long. Ted, Bubba won the 2012 Masters, setting up victory with one of the most memorable shots in Masters history. Talk us through that second playoff hole, which was on number 10 at Augusta. I just watched the YouTube clip last night to refresh my memory and uh, look at you as a as a younger younger man. Not looking that much fresher, though. You still look pretty good. Um, <laughs> can, can you talk us through that situation, like what was going through your head from the tee shot and to, and to the second shot? Yeah, so, you know, it, as a golfer, as a caddy, as a spectator, it's very hard to stay present, you know, in any sport that you do, especially when you get nervous. And that's really the key to relaxation is to recognize, hey, I'm right here in this moment. We don't know what's going to happen, right? And I think, um, you know, Bubba doesn't really like the 10th tee shot, even though he slices all his tee shots and it's the biggest slice on the whole course, uh, it's blind. So you can't see the landing area. And when he when he can't see the landing area, he feels uncomfortable. So he had been overcutting it and getting really close to the, the bushes on the left of the fairway on 10. So he got up on that hole and made an uncommitted swing, like, you know, kind of as we all do as amateurs, whatever you do, don't go over there. And when we say that, where do we go? We go over here, you know, which is not always as good. Don't hit it in the water, but go ahead and hit it out of bounds. I mean, we give ourselves permission to do the opposite, right? So he had a very poor tee shot, um, you know, especially for a hole like that. And then uh, when we got down there, you know, it was surprising to see, hey, we have an opening at least to get it out of the trees because we knew it was deep in the trees. So just you know? just for, just to, to set the scene for people, he, he basically hit a, a pretty severe hook as a left-hander into the right trees. Correct. Yeah, it was it was actually very straight because he he's aiming for a big slice, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. His driver is built not to turn over, so it's really hard for him to even draw it a yard. Um so he just aims way right and they hit it just dead straight, no cut. And it just, you know, yeah. it just went 40 yards in there or whatever. I mean, it was pretty deep. So we knew, you know, anytime you go really deep in the woods, you're kind of like, uh-oh, you know, there's going to probably be lots of stuff in the way. You know, yeah. if you're barely in there. You might have to avoid one tree. If you're way in there, there's probably a lot of things to deal with. Um, and then Louie had driver out. He changed clubs and went to three wood after we hit it in the woods. And then he hit like a heel cut. <laughs> so he was like 230 or something. I forget what it was. He was way back there. He had a yeah. poor shot himself, you know. Um, probably trying to play smart after what we did. And then, you know, that's what happened. So, so we kind of knew, okay, he's, he didn't have a guaranteed four, you know, because he's so far back and he's like hanging lie on the hill. Yeah. And he, uh, the he, tip, he 230 in just like off a, off a downhill lie. Like that's, that's not an easy yeah. shot into a par four. No. And if you see, if you're, if you're actually there in person, you can see it's even more severe because of the slope of the, the land. Um, and then the, the 10th green is probably, top three most treacherous greens out there to read. I mean, it's so difficult. The speed, you know, it's just a tough green, tough green to hit, tough green to read, tough green to get it up and down on. So um, so we knew, you know, he didn't have an eight iron in. We got, we have a chance. So we get down to the ball and it's wide open to get it out of the trees, you know, as far as not going at the pin. And we, we both know, hey, you can hook it a lot, you know. So, uh, so basically it was 135 front and that's how far he hits it. When he hits a gap wedge, you know, straight, it'll go 135. And the pin was on 30 for 165 total. So we figured, okay, let's play the front number. And then with the hook, it's going to go past the front number, you know, who knows how much past, but at least it'll get on the green if we hook it the right amount. So that's how we chose the club. And then, uh, you know, obviously the situation is what made it so incredible because, I've played a lot of golf with Bubba and seen him hit many of those shots, sometimes just messing around from the middle of the fairway, you know, they'll watch this, um, yeah. you know, kind of deal. So when he hit the shot under the, under that pressure is when you, you recognize, wow, it's such an incredible shot. But if we were playing for fun, I probably would just say nice shot and just move on because it's something normal for him, not normal for most people. How much hook was on that shot that carried say 140 yards in the air how much did it curve through the air? Yeah, people, they did sports science and different people, you know, tried to measure it, I think from the blimp or whatever. And about 40 yards is what people come up with, something like that. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of like a breaking putt, you know, right away off the, right off the putter, it starts moving. So it's hard to say how much hook there really was, yeah. on it, but it right. was a lot. I mean, until you get over there and see it, 
where he was, you know, it's pretty hard. I actually, he took me to play there and I took a seven iron over there and tried to slice one. And I, I hit the biggest slice I could hit and I got probably 20 yards left of the green, you know, so it was difficult. If, if people haven't seen the clip, I can't encourage them enough to go on YouTube and just watch Bubba shot. 2012 masters or or whatever they need to search when you're looking at where he's aimed and they give you an overhead of he's basically aimed at a bunker that's pretty much in the fairway and then they show you where the green is and you're looking at it and you're kind of thinking he's just going 90 degrees out and then pitching onto the green right <laughs> and then he hits it and they they didn't actually do that great a slow-mo replay so you couldn't it was hard to see but he makes this big exaggerated swing and then you just see the ball coming down on the green and and faldo uphill (laughs) yeah it was just and the the amount that the ball spun sideways on the green from from the shot it's it's unbelievable to watch so it is yeah and then he so he he hit it to probably 10 12 feet yeah i would say probably 15 would be about right yeah and then louis hit his so Louis hit his four iron short. He hit a he hit a thin shot short. Pretty difficult pitch shot. Didn't hit a good pitch shot. Missed the putt, and then Bubba two putted for the win. Yeah, crazy. I mean, we knew how hard that chip was because the the front to back on that green when you're standing there, it looks like it's so slow, but it's so fast. I, I don't. I still don't been there ten times, and I still don't understand how that green is so fast that direction. It just seems like a catcher's mitt, you know, towards you and, uh, the ball seems to just roll out. So, uh, we knew it was a tough chip that he had. So, you know, we kind of felt like as long as he didn't make the putt and he had so many great putts that day that didn't go in. I mean, even that one, I thought he made it, you know, so the guy played amazing. It's, it's kind of the going back to the Grant Waite stuff. It's, it's really kind of, you know, Louie could have probably won nine times out of 10, you know, and sometimes it happens in golf. You can play phenomenal yeah. and you don't, you don't win. Right. You know, um, so it's, it's just, you know, I feel bad for him, even though Bubba, you know, it feel good for us. It feel bad for a guy that played that well and didn't get one, you know? Yeah. Obvi- obviously it's hindsight and it's, it's, it's easy to look back on a long time later. Do you think, uh, driver was the play for Louie off that tee, get further up the fairway? Uh, no, I really don't. Um, you know, I think three wood was the play. Most, uh, people that hit the ball any distance, which Louie can hit it pretty far. Uh, it's it's hard to turn a driver over and and a three wood there any kind of draw I think he hit it in the heel you know even a straight three wood will will catch the slope and roll down to maybe one seventy five front so okay uh, just a poor strike if he would have just hit it solid in the face he would have had at most I would say a six iron to the green okay you know uh, and with us in the woods that's big time advantage for him so just a, a miss hit at the wrong time you know which happens yeah. I mean. You can yeah, thin yeah. it on one hole and it doesn't matter, and you thin it on that hole and it does matter. People say you're a choker. It's, it's golf. You know, you can hit bad yeah, yeah. shots. Just sometimes win, right? Yeah, yeah, no, 100%. Um, yeah, so anybody who hasn't seen that shot, definitely go to YouTube, look it up. You'll get a, a much better representation of what we're talking about. It's amazing. Excluding tournament rounds, what work does a, what, what work does a tour caddy do? Maybe some of the more unseen things the recreational golfer or casual fan doesn't realize. You're saying excluding practice rounds or tour? No, no, just 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 excluding. Like obviously, everybody knows that you're with the player during the round. You're carrying the right. bag. You're but things that we don't see. So say maybe, uh, you know, mon- Monday to Wednesday, or even even on an on an off week, if there's stuff that you do when you're not even with your player. Yeah, so basically, you know, think of us as an outdoor butler. So <laughs> <laughs> that the duties include lawn mowing, weed eating, sandwich making. No, I'm um, yeah, you know, it, you're basically in the service business, Mike, and you know, your job is to serve your pro and try to help him improve. So whatever that entails, you'll do it. Whether it's reading a book, trying to gain some information, you know, talking to Mark Brody or. Sweeney or someone like that that has some really cool ideas on putting or shot link or strokes gain categories, trying to find some way to help your pro get better uh, would be the number one thing. And then, you know, Monday through Wednesday, the biggest thing would be just knowing the golf course. Your guy's going to ask you how far it is to that bunker. What's that? Can we get it up and down out of that bunker? 
what's what's over there if we miss it to the right you know what's past this bunker what this what that and so your job is to know those intricate details uh prior to him asking the question so you a lot of times we'll we'll look at the weather forecast well number two is going to be downwind even though we played it monday tuesday wednesday into the wind it's going to be downwind so i need to plan for that because he's going to want to know if he can get to that bunker with a two iron downwind and I need to have an idea of how firm is the fairway, how far is it rolling, what's the forecast. You know, those are the things that we're trying to figure out. So you're basically trying to study for a test and you're not sure what the answers are, what the questions are going to be. You're just trying to prepare yourself for the test because you you want your guy to believe in the information. If he believes in the information, he probably is going to make a good swing. So you're a salesperson. You're trying to sell him on an idea, a good information. And that comes from, you know, being prepared well for potential questions yeah does that involve walking the course each day uh monday to wednesday or is your is your player going to be playing that day anyway or is there a lot of walking the course on your own taking notes i presume you guys have pretty good um you know like uh booklets and things with with course info now too with you know how good satellite is and all that sort of thing yeah so there's a guy who carried on tour for 20 years mark long for fred funk mostly he makes an incredible yardage book, the best yardage book in the world. If you ask me, I've never seen one better than what he makes. So the information has really become so easy. You almost even don't even need to walk a course. There's so much information on the yardage books and it's so accurate to, you know, drawn to scale and things. So yes, we do walk the course and it depends on, um, it depends on the course. If you go there every year, well, you know, we've been to come to Riviera for 10 years. They haven't changed it. It's the same golf course. So you really don't need to walk it much. I would say it's more the U.S. Opens, the 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 Open Championship in in Britain, the uh, the PGA where the venue changes year yearly. That you get to a course and you're not sure. Maybe you were there seven years ago, but they've added some bunkers or they've done this. So you're trying to familiarize yourself with those types of courses. Whereas a place that you play all the time is pretty easy. And then the second part of that equation would be what is your pro. What's he like? You know, if I was catting for Bernhard Longer, I would have to walk the course a lot. Bubba doesn't really care that much about information. So I, I don't walk the course that much. I really don't because he, it's a waste of my time. In 15 years, I've learned I don't need to know that much. He's a field player. He's got incredible instincts. It's kind of just a general, it's about 250. Okay, that's good enough. You know, you chip a shot up there, try to fly it over a bunker kind of deal. So, uh, it really just kind of depends on what what your pro requires and you're just trying to do like i said everything you can to make him play the best that he possibly can you know and sell him on he's good and you have good information and let's let's work it let's get it you know i know bubba um is quite unique in terms of his technique how how he how he swings and how he hits a golf ball obviously you're a little bit unique too in terms of caddies in that you also coach golfers you're you're really into instruction do caddies do caddies do much in terms of having a look at how players are swinging i know players have instructors their instructors aren't always there and they're also not on the golf course with them a lot of the time so do caddies do much work functioning as a player saying hey ted how I, well, another player might not say this to you but do players say to their caddies much How's my swing looking? Do you see anything going on? Because if a caddy isn't an instructor, but he's been caddying for a player for three or 10 years and seen him hit 20,000 shots, surely he must pick up cues on how that player is swinging and how they're hitting it. Yeah, great observation. And I would say absolutely yes. You know, there's there's no doubt, even Bubba sometimes, I'm, I'm having trouble cutting it. Well, your ball's two feet too far forward. We'll be back two feet. Oh, wow. Why did I have my ball way up there? You know, that's that's something that you're just trying to find that normalcy and help them. Like I said, tour pros don't get very far off, so it's just usually a little nudge here, a little nudge there to get them back to where they are, where they where they were when they liked it. So yes, hundred uh, percent caddies are definitely looking at things, putting strokes, chipping strokes. You know, uh, it, we're it's our job to be a student of our the guy we're working for and know him and know him well and know what makes him tick know when he's swinging well kind of where he's thinking what's you know and try to and try to put him in that mindset and make sure he doesn't get too far away and start changing you know i know there there are some pros uh who even let their caddies coach him you know even mm -hmm. and 
and that's that's interesting too you know an interesting dynamic so uh yeah i would say we're definitely a third eye for for the pros and also a great no filter communicator to the to the teaching pro you know uh sometimes we're biased when we say oh yeah i hit it left but the, this this happened or that happened you might see it because you're not emotionally attached to it for what it really is whereas someone who's emotion, emotionally attached to it might not see the picture as clear so a lot of times a, a teacher a teacher will come to you and say hey what do you see i want to hear his story but i also want to hear your story and see if they match up i understand that there's probably many different personalities on tour how difficult it is is it to to say to a tour player i think you could do better by trying this or i think you're making a mistake or an error with this is that a challenge yeah man i think that's what honestly what makes a great caddy um a person that's willing to fight for what they believe in sometimes the wrong information if somebody buys into it gives them confidence so it's not always about having the best information it's sometimes it could just be having someone on the bag that just has this huge belief system you know that convinces you you're the best putter there is even though you slice across it 12 degrees yeah like, nobody can put as good as you and you start yeah i think you're right and you start thinking you can make putts you know that's a good asset to have right so uh but yeah it's scary you know uh caddying it's like a very high turnover rate that we don't last long you know Bubba and I have a, a, a long relationship, but we, we don't last long in our in our endeavors. Uh, usually the partnership ends pretty quick. So tough business to be in. It's probably two or three years is average. You know, every uh, beginning of the season, end of the season, there's always caddies calling me. Hey, man, if you hear something and oh, a lot yeah. of times I'm shocked, shocked by, wow, can't believe that happened. Wow, that guy, no way, they they split. So it's it's hard to say. But when you spend that much time with anyone, it can get to you. You know, six, seven yeah, hours a day. Doesn't matter who it is. Yeah. So put a ring on it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, that's that's really interesting info. Like, it's it's so it's so interesting to be able to get insights into, you know, something that millions of golf fans are interested on, which is, you know, we all basically focus on this 125 player you know almost like unicorns that are uh playing on the pga tour every week and it is it is definitely fascinating trying to learn you know are they like some sort of robots are they you know completely different to to normal people inverted commas but kind of hearing that there's there's the same you know questioning and dialogue going on that happens in in tons of other jobs and tons of other sports but just that you know a very different skill set is is something that I think is, uh, is something we can learn from and, and definitely interesting. Ted, what's the worst mistake you've made on the course as a caddy? Oh, by far, I've given a, a bad number. You know, um, if, I've done it a couple times in my 15 years. Uh, I think I did it once for Paul, and I think I've done it twice for Bubba. Uh, that's that's a horrible feeling when your guy peers it right at the pin and doesn't hit the green, and you know you know, the wind wasn't that strong or something. You're like, that is not the right yardage. <laughs> is that just a, literally just the Matt's error? You just added something up wrong or pay something off? No. Uh, so the, the two times are kind of funny now. <laughs> yeah. So I think in 07, Bubba was in third place at Riviera on Sunday. And, uh, and you know, we get to the par three and they, had, they usually have a car that you can win a hole in one with this, stage that they put this car on and these flowers and everything yeah. right on the back of the tee box so they had moved that whole car stage flowers everything up one tee and i didn't pick up on it and neither did he and a lot of the times when you look in the book it's just the back of that tee box so i i assume we're on the farthest tee back you can't see behind it anymore because there's you know the stage is on it so so i just walked oh, it off of here perfect cut six iron right at the pin and air mailed the green up against the stands he goes is that the right number? I said, obviously not. <laughs> was, nope, definitely not. Cause that's oh. the way you go that far. Yeah. But then, then we get up there and it's the worst lie you've ever seen. Of course, you know, it can't be an easy chip. This is terrible. I'm like, Oh my gosh, dude, just get this on the green. So he chips it on the green to 10 feet, which is a really great shot. Now he's got a 10 footer that breaks a foot. So you got to match the speed and the pace. I'm like, dear God, please help me. You know? And he makes it. I'm like, yes. And then he, not me, not we, but he tripled the next hole. So that that part was on him. So oh. 
so, yeah, uh, so that was a good one. And then um, we were playing at Plainfield. Jordan Spieth was number one in the world at the time, and the the they never put a pin on a forty four percent slope ever. But this one particular green, there's nowhere to put it. It's an old school golf course, so they put it on this back shelf. The green's probably eighty, probably eighty or maybe a hundred feet deep. It's a really large green, so they put this pin on a four percent slope. And Jordan, number one in the world, hits it up there four feet from the hole, spins it back, and goes all the way off the green a hundred feet. So now we're like, okay, what are we going to do? So we take two clubs extra. Bubba hits it. He's the only guy that's kept it on the shelf up there. Two putts, and the guy comes up and says, hey, we, you got a bad time. Didn't put us on the clock. Didn't tell us we are warned, anything. And Bubba's a fast player. He's ne- I've never heard, ever heard anybody say you're on the clock or anything. So now I know him when he gets that stuff. He's he's like, oh, i got to hurry. So he hits it down the middle of the next one. I'm like, hey, man, just just relax. you got plenty of time. Okay, you don't need to rush. Because he's playing really well. Matter of fact, we finished third that week. I'm like, don't just chill, buddy. Okay, I'm I'm stressing out because I'm thinking this guy's just ruined my player. You know, he's gonna get it. Mm. He's like, I'm fine. No, no, calm down. You know, his was like, I'm fine. I said, calm down. <laughs> I'm yeah, all yeah. So I run down there, and in the yardage book, they have 157 uh, on one of the heads, and then they also have 157 front from a different head. And I got those two confused. So, uh, you know, it, I actually gave him the shorter one. So he peers this shot right at it. It lands 10 yards short of the green and it has a false front and comes backwards like 20 yards. And then he duffed his chip and almost came back to our feet again. Then he chipped it to five feet and made it. I was like, ah, so we make bogey. I mean, we go from probably making birdie to bogey. Uh, it was brutal. How, how long was between those two, those two incidents? Probably four years, five years, maybe. Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you did enough to keep your job in between. Yeah yeah um 16 years uh, or 20 years now i was wrong with my uh, my assumption earlier must bring with it an education about certain things into human behavior that are difficult to achieve elsewhere the psychology side of the game is fascinating and you brought this up a little bit earlier already why in your experience do some players seem to handle high pressure environments better than others especially amongst players who seem to be almost inseparable when the pressure is removed? Yeah, great question. I think, um, you know, upbringing is a huge part of that um, and not always a good upbringing. Uh, you know, I've had some deep conversation with Patrick Reed and and he's he's had some tough, tough things, you know, in his childhood that made him tough, right? And then you have maybe like a Webb Simpson who handles pressure well in a total different way, loving family, you know, great childhood. So I think circumstantially, uh, number one would be, what is your, what is your childhood like? How did your parents encourage you? How did they treat you when you made a mistake? One parent maybe treats your kid with love. Another parent's like, if you do that again, you know, you're going to have to run a mile if you make a bogey, which not Patrick, but another tour pro actually had to do, um, when he was playing the mini tours, every bogey he made, he had to run a mile. That makes you tough. You know what I'm saying? So I think uh, you definitely have your your past can can prepare you for that. Kind of like military, right? You know, when you're going to the military, they're trying to break you down and rebuild you. So there is that that aspect of it. And then I think there's also the mental side of it uh, that's just kind of a genetic disposition. You know, you know, in your world of training people, you have no idea who's going to push that last rep out. It has nothing to do with size. It's all to do with what kind of mentality do they have and what do they have inside of them. Uh, we spent a day with the Navy SEALs uh, one time, and and we asked them, you know, how, how, who makes it through? And they said, we have no idea. You know, they get 100 people come to Bud's training, and it might be a guy who's a triathlete that doesn't make it, and a guy's been sitting on the couch and is 300 pounds, and he makes it. And then the next week, the triathlete makes it, and the guy sitting on the couch didn't make it. So you really can't m- measure the mental aspect of the game. Uh, I do 100% believe that you can train yourself to uh, to be mentally tough, but it's it's scary. You know, it's scary to change and to go for something different. It's very scary. We're, we're human beings. We like comfort. We like routine. We like knowing what's, what's coming down the pipe. And uh, very few people like that aspect of, I have no idea what's going to come down the pipe. You know, I don't think many people are true adrenaline junkies. So if you take the adrenaline junkies out, and you take you put the people in that that do well under pressure that aren't adrenaline junkies. Uh, I think that there's definitely a way to get to that that point. But you're going to have to just like you have to push yourself to grow in the gym. You have to push yourself to grow mentally and do things that you're uncomfortable with. And I think that's where 
you know, guys like Paul Azinger was constantly, I mean, he was not playing good at all when, when I worked with him. He was playing terrible, but he was always saying, hey, watch this. I'm thinking, man, please don't watch this. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not a good thing. You're, you're, you're just beating your confidence up. But to him, it, he loved it. You know, he couldn't wait to put the pressure on himself. And that, to me, that's mental training. It's just keep putting yourself in that environment. You know, uh, if you're scared to speak in front of people, call a meeting in your house to start with your family and just say, all right, the two of you, I, I'm going to recite a poem. And you probably yeah, yeah. stutter and blah, blah, mess up and. Your family's like, okay, that was weird. And then they go back to playing. And then next thing you know, you invite the neighbors and you recite another poem. And pretty soon you build up to 30 people you're saying it in front of and you start your confidence starts growing. So you can do it. So you have to put yourself in the situation and be willing to challenge yourself to grow. And if you're not willing to challenge yourself, then you're just going to keep getting the same result, you know? And that's so I think that's that's the ticket to how to get there. You know, one, what's your past? Two, are you willing to grow? And then some people are just genetically made that way that they they love pressure. We're inundated with new availability to technology with TrackMan, 3D, force plates, you name it. Um, really good equipment with all the expert fitters and also like swing instruction. Like we have instructors who, because of, I suppose, aided by that technology and aided as well by the, the analytics stuff with, with shot link and strokes gained, there's so much there that we can say objectively measure and players can do to improve the mental side of things and mental training. Like you talked about there is much harder to measure objectively and to put say n numbers on to, to measure improvement. Do you see players who are coming out now are maybe what's the word I'm trying to looking for? They're actually putting an emphasis on their mental training. It's not just, they're not leaving it to chance or say getting, getting lucky as such by maybe what their upbringing was, or maybe experiences or environments they were in. Are coaches and players coming up now realizing that mental training is something that needs to be an element of their development, like fitness is, like their golf swing is, like their chipping is, if that makes sense. It's actually becoming Absolutely. an accepted thing. When you become an elite player, Mike, I think that's the most important thing, honestly. So if you're training to be great at golf and you're not training the mental side, you're probably taking a step backwards. You know, so I, I really believe in that with all my heart. I think that it's super important that you uh, prepare yourself mentally for the pain that comes from competing in a golf tournament. I mean, there's pain. You work real hard. And you hit a ball and all of a sudden you hit the best shot of your life and a huge gust of wind comes and blows your ball in the water. What do you do? It's it's unfair. It's not basketball indoors. There's no wind in basketball. It's either you do you do your job or not. You can do your job in golf and there's a spike mark. Well, now we can repair them. But in the old days, there was a spike mark in your way. I just chipped it to four feet and now I can't make this putt because there's a teepee. I got it. You know, it's there's a lot of licks you're going to have to take. So preparing yourself mentally for that, I think, is huge. And I don't know if this is true, but I heard that uh, Colin Morikawa's swing coach uh, that he's been with since he was nine is also a, a psychologist. So, you know, that kid came out as a gamer right away. I mean, winning very early, handling the pressure, winning a major. It's like, how how's this guy so prepared? So I think there's probably some some merit to that, you know. Yeah, no, that's great. Ted, all your um, your talk about the ability to face change and new challenges, how likely is it we see Ted Scott making a run at the seniors tour? Buddy, I would love to do that. Um, you know, the hard part for me is uh, if, if, if I had maybe a job that I could just do that, you know, the, the, the difficulty is I have a, I have a family, a caddy. Uh, I do love practicing. I do love playing. Uh, but uh, those guys are really, really good out there. You know, um, we just played golf with a 63-year-old, Nick Price yesterday and the father's son, and he stripes it. I mean, it's hilarious how far he still hits it, how straight he still hits it, how great he putts it, you know, and this guy's, you haven't even heard of him on the champion's tour. And then Bernard yeah. Longer, three out of five cuts at 62 years old in the, you know, in the masters or whatever. So those guys, again, very elite people think, Oh, the senior tour is so easy. Ha ha ha. You know, I don't think people realize how good those guys are. So, uh, so it would have to be some sort of situation where I could spend time really dedicating myself to prepare. 
Uh, would I like to do some Monday qualifiers and things? Absolutely. You know, one of my favorite things to do as you and I have pursued speed in my swing, I love to learn and challenge myself just to grow, whether it's for a, a, a purpose or not. Uh, for me, it's the, the joy I get is if I can learn how to do it, then I can help somebody else learn how to do it. So uh, I want to get in some qualifiers. I want to do some tournaments so I can be nervous. So then I can help somebody else go, hey, look, here's what worked for me. Maybe this will work for you. This is what I struggle with. You know, it, it's it's the fun part of the journey that I enjoy, not necessarily always the success. You know, winning the Masters was fun, but leading up to it is really where the fun is. You know, it's it's the, the heartache, the joy, the grinding, the fighting, the trying to solve the puzzle. When you look back, it's like, man, that's what that's where the life is. That's where the blood of, of life is, not, you know, sitting there on top of the mountain going, hey, we did it. It's the journey. Getting there is where the, the amazing part is. So I would love to do that. But right now, you know, got kids and family and can be hard to see myself doing that. Yeah. You've got three, three and a half years to, yeah. to prep if you want to do it. Two and a half. Two and a half. Two and a half. Two and a half. If you, okay. you can get me to 205 ball speed the way I putt, I mean, it should be pretty easy. I'll just drive yeah. the greens and chip and chip it on and putt. It'd be simple. Yeah, you, you're you're not you're not that far away. You're you've 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 cr- you've cracked 185 ball speed, so uh, you're you're on your way. That's that's a trump card that is that is not currently on the senior store. That's for sure. That's right. Um, I try to have each episode provide a key concept that all levels of golfer can implement to try and improve their own game. I would like you to talk to us about green reading. Sure. You've done, I don't know, however many thousand pro-ams you've, you've watched amateurs read and puck greens forever. How can, how can regular golfers read greens better and improve their putting? Yeah. So uh, green reading is, you know, used to be experience was the only way you could get it. And that's why I think it was so difficult. Uh, When I grew up, I putted, uh, I mean, I would say my, my entire high school career, I didn't play at a club where we had driving range. So I just go putt. That's how I, that was how I practiced. And there was a lot of slope on the green. So I learned quickly what it, what it looked like and how to associate how far to play that out. Uh, that becomes very difficult to someone who's never done it. My daughter doesn't play golf. I could take her out to a golf course and say, which way is this ball going to roll? If I roll this ball towards the green, uh, towards the pin, without a doubt, she would say, oh, it's going to go to the right. And she would be correct. How much? She has no clue, right? So the hard part in reading greens is how do I get someone to quantify how much break there's going to be? And the second hard part is uh, generally on the PGA Tour, we're playing the same speed, very similar speed greens every week. When you're playing at your home club, you might play one that's six on the stint meter. The next one's 10 on the stint meter. Well, guess what? That changes the break. So uh, the difficulty, one, is to get the experience. And two is it changes based on the green speed. So uh, one of my favorite things, if you're a total beginner, would be to learn the Aimpoint Express method, you know, because they're, uh, he came up with that I- idea to teach kids. If you can feel what 1%, 2%, 3% slope feels in your feet, you're going to have a really good starting point for where that particular putt, you know, is, is at, where you can kind of start and then go from there. And then you have to have some experience. Um, as you become better and better at reading greens uh, and more of an elite player, you start looking at grain, you start looking at, you know, how, how's the architect designed this water to come off? Because when they water a green, you know, they, they want the, the water to drain and wh- how's it going? Where's it going to go? If I poured water right here, where's it going to disappear? How's it, how's the, the, the architect getting this off the, off the grass? So it'll grow, you know, things like that. So there's a lot of factors, um, little small things that start to make a difference. And then uh, the final piece of the puzzle, which is probably where amateurs struggle the most, like the, the worst golfers, uh, is hitting at the right speed. You know, we get on tour and I mean, a 20 footer, they have zero clue how to hit it 20 feet. And if you can't, if you can't hit a putt uh, 20 feet, then how do you know what your read is? Because as a ball slows down, it starts to break more if the slope is constant, right? So the beginning of the putt when the ball is traveling the fastest is kind of like a bicycle you can take your hands off and ride with no hands when you're moving at a fast rate. When you start slowing down, the bicycle becomes unstable. A golf ball does the same thing. When it's moving fast off the putter, it's rolling pretty straight. As it slows down, it really starts to swing. And you have to figure out where on that on that arc do you want to put the cup, right, based on the speed you're going to hit it. So most people, when they're reading a putt, amateurs I'm speaking of, they're never considering the speed. Um, they're just looking at, 
oh, I'm going to start this, you know, two cups out, but they might hit it to die it in or two feet different, you know, past. And that changes everything. So I would say worst golfers get something like the Aimpoint uh, DVD and learn the Aimpoint Express method. Really good golfers work on your speed control a lot because you're probably already really good at reading greens. Maybe your speed is not matching up to that. You know, that's that's the two ends of the spectrum. I think that would help them the most. When I walked, like, really good points there, I was at uh, Harding Park for the week this year at the PGA, and I got to walk the golf course every day with no fans. So as a golf nerd, I was on the golf course all day, every day. And the thing that struck me the most watching the players on the course, we all know they strike it really, really good. But what struck me is if you've played with, a, let's say, a scratch golfer or a, a low handicap golfer, you've probably seen them hit shots that are as good as a pro golfer. Like they're pure, they're, they're pure shots. They're, they're pure. Like there's, there's not that much difference. Some of them might not be as powerful. What completely blew me away was how well the players putted. Like you're watching players from, let's say, 15 to 30 feet. And it's not that they make them all, not not by any means, but they get so close to making those. Like right. I was watching players and like they were either ju- they were just missing or they were going in. Whereas even good amateur players I've played with, if they have a 30 footer, if they put it anywhere within say a putter length around the hole, it's <laughs> kind of like uh, I, I I two putted, you know, made made par, let's get right. it. Whereas like they were so precise with their read and speed. It's, it's not surprising that more of them tend to drop. And I think what you're saying there is a lot of that does come down to how precise they can control the speed because then they know exactly how much it's going to break. And it has a good chance of dropping if it does get around the hole because it's not bombing past it and it's actually getting there. Yeah. And then if you can control the speed, then you can play more break. So your ball doesn't get away from you. You know, if you think about, uh, when you're playing a putt, let's say uh, just a side hill, let's say it's a perfect side hill putt. Well, when you start the putt, you're actually putting uphill. And the farther uphill you, you go, the more room you have for error. You know, the, the lower you go, the more the ball runs away. So when you can control speed, you can aim a little more break and have a chance of it just kind of dying in and walk up and give it the old I'll finish, which everybody loves to, to say from 30 feet. You know, no one likes a I'll mark it and they go over and put yeah. it in like this and just, okay, come on, you know, yeah. take a few deep breaths. So Yeah. The di- the difference between putting those first putts to two feet and four feet for amateurs is probably like a hundred percent make rate from two feet pretty much or 99%. We're probably about 75 or so from four feet. Yeah, and that's that's a huge difference in in absolutely. stress levels with your your chipping and and first putting, you know. Right. No. No. Absolutely. Um. Anything else that you would like to leave us with, Ted? A little bit of wisdom. My questions are uh, are are finished. Um. You know what? I want to say that uh, if you want to be successful, find someone that has the knowledge and that inspires you. And I think uh, you you know, if you're listening to Mike's podcast. He's going to bring a lot of that. You know, you, you've inspired me, man. You're a great human being, and I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you helping me. I enjoy being around you. I love telling people about what you do. Uh, you know, I think you'll inspire many people to try to pursue excellence, and that's really what it's all about. You know, wherever you are, if you're a 20 handicapper, don't get discouraged with people that are 15, or if you're swinging 100, don't get discouraged with people that can swing 110. You know, just try to get a little better today you know i think uh finally it'd be like if you went to a yoga class and one person could bend themselves in a pretzel and you can't touch you know barely touch your shins you know it's about it's not about going oh i shouldn't go to yoga because that guy can can bend himself into a pretzel it's more about saying hey i want to get better and right now i'm touching my shins hopefully in a couple weeks i can touch my ankles and then then my toes and then you know and it's just slow the the progress and the work is where you'll find joy and uh and that's one thing that I love about you, man. You're always pursuing excellence, trying to get better. And it's just so fun to hang out with people like that. So find people like Mike in your life and uh, just get after it, man. Your life will be much more enriched. Thank you very much, Ted. You're far too kind. And uh, the feeling is mutual, but really good information there for people, I think. Um, Ted does some great stuff on Instagram and Twitter, uh, some swing instruction stuff. 
and just some fun experiments with some of the things he's working on. So you can find him there. And I think he's usually pretty happy to answer questions. So leave him a comment or send him a message. And I'm sure he will get back to you. Ted, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Talk to you soon, buddy. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, I just have one favor to ask, and that is to please share the podcast with just one friend or family member. And also, if you have a spare 10 seconds and you listen on Apple Podcasts, just go and leave a rating and comment, please. This really helps to grow the podcast and get it out to more people. Thank you very much, and I will be in touch soon.